0: Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm so happy that you are joining us today because we have one of my closest, dearest, most beautiful friends joining us, May Yoshikawa. Many of you might know May, but many of you may not, because she is a Japanese Ashtanga Yoga superstar in my mind, but also in many uh, minds of many Japanese women. She's been uh, uh, an amazing inspiration. She is an author. She's a yoga and meditation practitioner and teacher and a mother of two boys. And in 2006, May became the first Japanese woman to be authorized by Shrikei Patabi Joyce and Sharat Joyce at the KPJAYI, the Krishna Patabi Joyce Ashtanga Yoga Institute. Um, she was the cover model for the Japanese magazine called Yogini for 10 full years. She was on 42 consecutive covers And she also had her own column within the magazine, which helped to really shift uh, culture and the understanding of yoga so that it wasn't just seen as physical exercise, but was taken to be a holistic lifestyle discipline and a practice that was about restoring health and balance into the busy lives of modern women and men in Japan, and so she's also currently the face of Adidas Yoga um, in Japan, and she's the founder and primary instigator, teacher, um, head head uh, teacher of Veda Tokyo which is a premier online yoga school that offers yoga, um, zazen meditation. I have a breathwork class that I teach every Friday morning in Japan at Vega Tokyo online. Um, and it's just a wonderful platform uh, for connecting students all across Japan, but also uh, internationally as well. You can get online from anywhere in the world and attend classes uh, at VEDA Tokyo. So we're going to talk to May today and um, I hope that you just love her vibrant, beautiful personality. She brings so much energy to everything that she does. And I just know you're going to fall absolutely in love with her. And also, I wanted to let you know about an amazing offer that I have coming up. I am partnering again with Marie Forleo, this time for her Time Genius program. And this is an incredible way to learn how to organize your life, organize your schedule, get out of time stress, and take back time for yourself you know learn to prioritize to play to rest learn scientific ways that are proven to maximize your effectiveness but also increase your happiness and satisfaction with your days your weeks and the time you have uh to enjoy your life you know this is your time this is your time on the planet Um, if you're feeling like you don't have time to prioritize your self-care or you're always feeling like you're behind and never getting enough done this is an incredible program that will help you shift not only your mindset but change your schedule change um, your habits around time and how you're spending your time create awareness around how you're spending your time that will really get you out of feeling that time crunch all the time. <laughs> so, I'm offering some amazing bonuses my purpose planning and breath work workshop, as well as a five week mastermind group. Uh, where you'll have daily support and weekly uh, support to get you through the program each module there's five modules within the program there's some live classes happening with marie and her team as well as the mastermind when you uh, want to do the program with me through my link you'll get to join in with my mastermind group and we'll go through it together so that you get that additional support to get you all the way through the end of the program. And Time Genius is opening its doors this week on Tuesday, September 27th. So I do hope you'll hop inside. It's going to be an awesome mastermind group and an awesome course. It's an amazing program. It changed my life, and I know it will change yours too. So come on inside Time Genius. Uh, Doors opening in a couple days on Tuesday, September 27th, and I look forward to seeing you inside. But now we will connect with May and hear about how she juggles all of the many jobs and things that she does in her life and comes out smiling, radiant, calm, centered, and perceptive, able to hold space for her students, her sons, her family. Um, She just has an incredible story and you're going to be blown away, literally. Hi, and welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case.
1: Harmony, we had a question sent in from uh, one of our listeners. <laughs> just wanted to ask you, um, let's see. On the podcast, have we changed the cursing status? <laughs> no. Do people still cuss, or can I start listening again? Because if they're Russell is still cussing... <laughs> It's a hard no for me.
0: It's, it's a blue that, podcast. A <laughs> blue yoga that podcast. That
1: comes from Mei Y in Japan.
0: <laughs> Mei Yoshikawa. Mei
1: Yo- Yoshikawa. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who is our guest today. Is she really? Yeah. Oh,
1: that's so embarrassing. She's
0: an author, a yoga teacher, a meditation practitioner, a mother... She is a supermodel, I think. Yeah. You could
1: say, <laughs> I think it's safe to call her a supermodel.
0: Yes, and she's graced 42 covers of Yogini magazine from 2003 to 2013. Didn't 2000, but I mean honestly, did, didn't
1: she found the magazine? She's a founder.
0: No, she didn't found it, I don't think, but we should ask her. She'll yeah. know more about it. Hi May, how are you doing?
2: You guys are a riot. <laughs> <laughs> To this whole intro thing happening, and I was about to interrupt as the guest who hasn't yet been introduced. Because, you know, oh, um, maybe I, I should listen in on a few more episodes before today's. <laughs> For whatever reason, the two episodes that I listened to recently were Eddie Stearns and then Bosch's, and that. <laughs>
3: screw me off with the whole like
2: cursing situation and just like, all of your podcast because it was so completely different so
1: mm, talking in yeah.
2: line, we'll just see this however it unfolds we yeah.
1: get we get complaints <laughs> we do <laughs> we, we often but, get complaints
0: but it, it really just mm. depends on who's with us you know
1: yeah <laughs> like greg nardi was on the show and i went off on Greg, cause I love Greg and he's my buddy, my bro. And I was far, far too familiar. And we got letters you know? <laughs> and then, you know, like Dina Kingsburg was on the show and I was like like a church mouse. I was so uh, Onegashimas, uh, very polite style. And uh, it's like, yeah, you're like different people. Russell's like different people around different people.
2: I gathered that much. (laughs) The whole episode with Eddie was like this authentic heart-to-heart confession session, you know? (laughs) Or something like I thought the listeners were getting to, I don't know, listen on something really deep and holy. And then like with Basha's, you went all in on like her sex life. And
0: I was like, what is going on Oh, man. Uh, you, you never know, right?
1: <laughs> we, oh, you know, one thing that we didn't get into with Basha was that time when the, I asked her to, to rub um, uh, oil on my back. What do you call that oil for the sun tanning lotion? Sunscreen. Sunscreen. I asked her to rub sunscreen <laughs> on my back in my sword. And then I just turned over and I was, you could just keep going, Basha. And in front of like the whole crowd she just rubbed my belly in public. And I was like, yeah, we should talk about that on the podcast.
3: maybe <laughs> your dream. Wait, wait, wait. Can
2: we like redo my intro? That's like not the note I want to start on.
1: <laughs> All of this can be cut out. So most of most of Harmony's job is that she cuts out my set pieces that I set up. One thing I wanted to talk about with you, May, that I'm really interested in, I wanted to see, if, find out if we could, if if we're related, because um, I heard <laughs> that me. your grandfather was uh, as an American living in post-war Tokyo and, mar- and married your grandmother. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, um, <clears throat> Christ, what's his name? Uh, Poppy Lund is what we call him, but George, George Lund. Uh, also lived in Tokyo, Japan uh, for eighteen years post-war, and ran a bowling alley. Now, is that your grandfather?
2: <laughs> no. Oh,
1: okay. All right. So we're no not related. Relation, no But in, you know, you never know. You got to ask. You know, because I he know, he left.
2: I just didn't want to interrupt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, no, you've got to interject with these negatives sooner. You've got to fully, fully get in there with the, the negatives.
2: So that I can say about myself. I'm three quarters Japanese, making myself cleanly sophisticated. I fit nicely into a sweet little, little bento box. But that one fourth <laughs> of me is a total American bitch. You know? so, and like you say, it depends on what day, on what occasion you catch me. And I quite frankly don't have any control.
1: So, oh, <laughs> that's how I feel about myself. I also feel like there's no control going on here. there's like, I don't know what I'm gonna say, it's I, all context dependent.
0: No, I think <sighs> you're amazing, me. You're like, you're just so sweet and cute, and I just want to eat you up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're also,
0: you're also. No, <laughs> so you're also you're also like I get it. I get the American bitch part. Like you know, you're a straight shooter and I love that about you. I think it's, it's a it's
2: little bit yeah. yeah. it, it took me a while to figure that about myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think lately I'm sort of catching on. You're
1: catching on. <laughs> Do you does it relate to like what like what language you're speaking in? Does that change your personality?
2: You know Um, formerly yes, and I find that as I grow older and more experienced and freer in the sense of like freeing myself from like old patterns and conditioning and things like your ideas about right and wrong and about fitting in a culture or in a social context or not fitting. I think all of those things used to matter more to me at a younger age and now like less and less, right? Cause we're kind of shedding those cultural conditioning and it's becoming more and more about a purity of self-expression wherever you are and with whomever you're conversing. And so, yeah, I, I, that's that's kind of been like an internal thing for me lately is that, um, cause I used to say a lot, um, there are aspects of my Japanese side that I have trouble expressing in English, or it's like a roundabout way to try to explain some of these like cultural ideas and stuff. And then there's the other part of me where um, the wittiness, for example, that I like to play with a lot in English. Um, sometimes I could be sublimely spiritual and then crack some totally crass joke. And that kind of
3: like
2: this mm-hmm. is very much, English expression for me, and gosh, that's really hard to translate into like Japanese. does mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> not fly. Um, yeah. but regardless of that kind of like linguistic and cultural funneling that goes on, I'm finding more and mm-hmm. more that I just want to be who I am. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in mm-hmm.
2: So it's been a discovery and an exploratory thing where I'm allowing more and more of that expression out of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Do you find like with the Japanese culture, like if you're allowing that expression, they're just kind of confused about what's happening Um, (laughs) or are they like understanding and receptive? Like, Oh, she's joking now.
2: It depends how it's received and how it lands. So, Mm -hmm. and it's not just the jokes, right? Um, Like sometimes you say something really straightforward and authentic. And then here, culturally, people are like, whoa, did she really just say that? Like in front of a room full of people? Like she really Mm -hmm. did. Right. Or, you know, it's just, there's Mm -hmm. a lot more, a little bit of um, suppression, maybe a little bit more control in this, like in the name of social harmony, but, Mm -hmm. and, Um, sometimes because of that suppression factor, that kind of straightforward authenticity is thoroughly appreciated. Right? Right. Yeah. And I think I used to put that on the audience or on the listener, you know, where they're, but more and more I'm making it, I think about myself and how I want to express myself regardless of how it's received. And it's partially, um, it's partially kind of ballsy. Like you have to just in a sense, not care how it lands. Um, but it, I, but it's also a lot of fun, I think. And I like that trajectory that I'm choosing as opposed to um, staying more in this neatly organized a box, like this lunchbox, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah.
1: Can I just ask if, if you feel that that's truly uh, cultural or is it more age appropriate? Because I feel like that that's the kind of thing that I've heard from uh, older American women, um, seniors. They feel so much more free to be themselves and say what they feel and say how they feel rather than feeling like they have to please everyone that they're with right. when they're, say, teenage girls. Right, have to be. Right you know, who feel maybe a compulsion to be good.
2: Yeah. And that being that the idea of being a good girl is actually not your own, but it's a good girl that suits your partner or suits society or suits culture. Mm. And it just doesn't step on like, you know, people's toes, but, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you're right. I think it has to do, um, not necessarily with, with age per se, but with, um, emotional maturity I think and the kind of wisdom Mm -hmm. that comes from living life you know life experiences are what teach you to maintain and hold your own inside Mm -hmm. of circumstances um and also Mm -hmm. just the self-respect right and the dignity and the integrity that only you can find for yourself that shit cannot be taught like, you, yeah. you have to be willing to see it and find out for yourself. But it can mm-hmm. be modeled, though. And I think that's yes. the thing, you know, where people like you and I can hopefully um, come in in our own little ways. And um, because it makes all the difference. If you know someone who's done it that way before, mm-hmm. and you see it modeled in society and you're like, whoa, I didn't know you're allowed to say that. Or I didn't know you could. <laughs> yeah. Voice those opinions and and um, not be mean or prickly about it. Mm. You know, necessarily be negative, right? Yeah, yeah. Or
0: like put up boundaries and hold space, and it it not be construed as like selfish, Mm. (laughs) right, (laughs) or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas like before, I mean, in in my family, it's very like you know, there's a lot of codependency, a lot of like. Uh, people pleasing, a lot of like, you know, no oh. boundaries. Like, I'll just do everything for you Harmony, anytime. Harmony,
1: I'm going <laughs> to hold the mic here. Your mother listens to the no, show. She <laughs> <laughs> no, she doesn't. She
0: does. You know, and and so then if you grow up in that that kind of environment where you feel like you always have to sacrifice yourself for the good of others, right? And then you don't really learn how to hold compassionate boundaries for yourself. Right, so, right. But like you're saying, you, then you meet a nice, like a strong woman that's a mentor or a teacher or a guide of some sort. And you're like, oh, wow, this is possible for me.
2: Yeah. And that, that kind of strength can go hand in hand with gentleness and compassion and kindness and caring and being mindful of others and still like hold your own and that the respect is there regardless of similarities or differences, you know, but, but always, always you, you must first sort of tap into that respect within yourself before you can offer it to others. Cause like you said, a lot of times you're just sort of, you don't even ask yourself what you want or what's meaningful to you or, you know, before you venture out to please others. Right. Right. Totally. So that, yeah, I think um, life experience just sort of helps to balance that out eventually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Sometimes Harmony will call me and 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 talk about the um the workshops that she's running overseas and and how it's going. And and I often I feel like the best thing that I can say to her when she's talking about her experience is like, well, you know, what would Dina do <laughs> in this situation? You know, when you're when you're running a workshop and um you're like, what would Jesus do? Is you,
0: know, <laughs> yeah. you what, find that mentor that that what, models the yeah. the thing that you are seeking to yeah to cultivate within yourself.
1: Yeah, right. I just I feel like she's such she has such strength and such clear boundaries about what's appropriate and what she'll allow to happen in a room or in a space or on a workshop. And I I'm wondering if if you also have that. Um, do you also have that bracelet, that WWJD bracelet? What, <laughs> what would, Jesus, what would do? Jesus do? You know, who's been a, a, a the strong female role model for you that you might model yourself on as a professional?
2: Oh, I, I couldn't quite say as a professional because um, the figure that I look up to isn't like a modern day, I don't know, yoga phenom. But I-, mm. I <laughs> always, always carry Sri Ma Anandamayi in my heart. Mm, okay. I, um, Beautiful. I uh, first came across her picture. It was a photo of her in the magazine Namarupa back when it was in print. Oh. And mm-hmm. since the first time I saw this picture, since the first time I laid eyes upon her, I was just, I don't know, something just pulled me in. Like I wanted to know everything about her. And I read every article, um, every book I could find. Um, I visited her ashram in Kankal in northern India a couple times. Mm-hmm. I've had some amazing experiences there. And just, and sometimes, like when I would close my eyes and go into meditation or um, just a moment of resemblance, it's often her ashram, this white cone shaped structure that I see in my mind's eye. And it just, has that space in my heart? So very often for me, it's mm. uh, yeah. What would Ma do? Oh, that's beautiful.
1: Well, if let's say that like Valerie Swift, the founder of the Finding Harmony podcast um, uh, fan club, hadn't heard of of this lady, could you set up for our listeners who who she is and what and wh- what is her her status in the world?
2: I mean, her I can story. tell you
1: her story. Yes, not
2: her status. Her she's
1: manifestation. She's no longer with us, except she in energetic no longer, form. She, but... <laughs> okay, so she's an energetic form now.
2: Yeah, I guess she passed <laughs> in the late '80s. Is, it? is that about right, Harmony?
0: I think so. It might have been early mid '80s. i yeah, the exact Yeah, she was
2: tiny lady from northern India, northeastern India, I guess, around Bengal and um you know she um i suppose was raised more or less in an, in an ordinary um like uh indian context she was married to her husband i think at the age of 14 as young as 14 and she was this family person um and served her husband and uh but she i, I believe since birth was um an enlightened soul you know she um, didn't uh, perceive the world like many of us do like most of us do and it's kind of like I, I sense that like she always kept one foot in the supreme self or in um, high consciousness um, but her young her early life she just lived like an ordinary lady but I believe like Um, In her 20s or even early 20s, um, people recognized her energy of contentment, absolute contentment and joy and just beingness without having to explain herself or to have some doctrine or, you know, she was just this ordinary being. And so then um, she began to grow a discipleship around her that just naturally gathered, you know, not of her Mm -hmm. doing planning or anything. Um, which just kept growing and growing. Um, So she would do these satsangs, um, these inspired satsangs and share about, share her beingness, I think, her beingness and her energy more than anything else. But for me, I think one of the most impactful things about learning about the existence of her is that um, I had read and studied a lot about these, some Indian saints and um, swamis and, and, and a lot of them on a spiritual path, they're male, you know, just Mm -hmm. a lot of them historically have been, and they're great and they're fabulous. And I've always gathered and learned so much from them, but as a woman who might, or might want to get married or have kids or have family or, um, and also have a yoga practice or your spiritual life and, and do all of the mundane things of the world as well. Um, there's something to be said about balance and being that needs to express the truth of who you are. So one of my favorite stories about um, Shreema Anandamayama is that she used to go into these spontaneous samadhis, you know, just like deep absorption, immersion. Um, so she might, there, and when you go in her ashram, that they have these paintings on the wall with these little stories about her love. But there's one where um, there's a picture that depicts her in the kitchen on the stove and she's cooking something, but the fire under her frying pan is like, like, like you know, set in big flames because she's like in Samadhi, like as she's cooking and she's just like somewhere else. Um, but, but every account of her says that no matter how deep, her meditations and samadhis were and after, you know, how many decades of growing a following and even her husband um, later on in his life took her as his guru. Um, Even then, so she would be in these like deep meditations and he would call her name and from any state of consciousness, she would snap back in to just be this grounded mother. You know, and so that's, it's just, it's a minuscule example, but um, I really really cherish the idea of sublime spirituality, but it needs to be grounded and rooted in our physical being, you know, and, and the roles that we each play here and do here and live here cannot be undermined in comparison to whatever spirituality we might pursue. So, so yeah, that's just the little thing that I um, keep in my heart. Yeah. such Mm
0: -hmm. a beautiful example too. I think of, of this idea of, you know, of, of what feminine spirituality is and not, you know, that it's binary or like masculine or feminine or, you know, whatever your gender is, it's not gender based. It's just, um, you know, that, that feminine quality or that, that um quality of the divine feminine is is really i think very much immersed and embedded in the earth and in nature and in you know being a part of community and a part of the earth and in doing your dharma and you know being involved in worldly activities and it's not so much that that spirituality and isolation, like you were talking about with the, you know, many sages and saints that, that are maybe embodying more that masculine energy where they're able to kind of retreat and like divorce themselves from family life and divorce themselves from social commitments and able to just kind of like focus entirely on their spiritual practice. Whereas like, I think the feminine spirituality or the divine feminine is very much uh, embodied in In our being, like you're saying, in in what we're doing as human beings here, and I feel like there's much more um, momentum, maybe even in this direction these days. We're starting to see that if we want, you know, change to happen on our earth and in our communities and on our planet, we need to have this energy, the divine feminine, like motivating us and moving us, and we need to connect to that and not have this sort of sense that our spiritual life is divorced from our, our home life or our social life, or our political life. Right. Um, Yeah. It's really beautiful. I love that you brought her up for, (laughs) as a great example.
2: And also just, you know, whatever works for you, right? Like for me, for whatever reason, since the first time, since the first moment I laid eyes upon her, I knew I had a connection with her. You know, mm. um, and so I wanted to know and learn everything about her the way you want to know everything about a lover, you know, or mm-hmm. just when like you completely fall in love with. Um, and then that love just never leaves you. You know, once that spark enters you, it just never yeah. leaves you. But for someone else, um, it might be someone, somebody else, or in some other way, or, um, you know, the divine masculine and the divine feminine interact and different. Ways and different moments of your life, and in the universe, mm. and the consciousness, and it's it's a vast, infinite, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> you know. So take whatever works for you. But mm. for me, um, yeah, I just have a special connection with her. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, it's interesting. You um, you certainly radiate a kind of benevolent charisma that I can see is. Extremely attractive. Just kind of looking at the screen here, it's like, wow. I think, I think I'm probably not the only person. You know, I think probably tens of thousands of people look at you and it's like, oh, she is benevol- benevolently attractive, and I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to look uh, and get to know her. I I wonder who do you take after in your in your family? Are you like, are you your mom, or do you carry the spirit of your of your father with you? Like, were they did they have this kind of electric charm around uh, a spiritual passion?
2: Um, I mean, I think that both my mom and my dad had certainly charisma and character, um, expressiveness, joy. My mom had kind of like this. Uh, like a goddess quality about her. She's the mother to four kids and I'm the youngest of the four. And she, so she had four pregnancies and childbirth between the age of 20 and 30. Um, Mm. So I remember being a child and like I, to this day, actually um, I, to me, my mother is the most beautiful person I've ever met in my whole life oh, and you know um, yeah. I mean she and so my mom's a half American and half Japanese and in the late 60s like 1968, nine seventy, like around there in Japan for the first time in history they started to hire these what they call half models um, so my mom my mom did the all of the major campaigns for like Shiseido makeup, Toyota cars, Tokyo department stores. Like she was just the face of every magazine, and you know she was like, wow, yeah, she she was um very much active that way in her career as a model. Um and and like to this day, even last year, some of her advertisements were displayed in the National Museum as art pieces. Oh. <laughs> um,
3: oh.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, so so there's that um, that and how would you say there's also a strength of character that can be like strong headedness, you know. Mm. Um, so I grew up around major influences, you know, not just my mom and my dad, but my sister and then my other sister and then my brother. And then my grandma and grandpa used to also live with us. So as a child, we were a family of eight, you know, it's mm-hmm. not uh-huh. all common in Japan. And so... Uh, father's
1: and- father or mother's... side?
2: Yeah, father's side.
1: Okay. Father's
2: side. Um, so yeah. the Japanese side, like wholly Japanese yeah. side. Um, yeah, but I feel like... I feel like everyone ha- each had their own distinct bright color and mm. charisma. The spirituality part, I remember being curious like I started writing letters to God as a first grader. So so wow. in my own way and and I knew in my own little mind that I wasn't going to get a letter back. So oh, really? I did actually. I I, I vaguely remember, like the way that I used to think about Santa Claus, for example. I think I, I think I um, dreamt of of getting a response or getting some presents or something. But when I was writing letters to God, it was like like a note in consciousness or something, like a journal to myself, I don't think I had the same expectation of a, a response the way I did with Santa Claus, which is kind of funny. And all of these things, obviously, in hindsight. But but um, I can't remember that if anyone inspired me to do that. Like, we have not, my family has not been religious. Um, like, we don't have, like, a Buddhist um, butsudan, like they do in many um, Japanese households um, for your ancestors or... Um, But my mom was an occasional churchgoer. So, and it wasn't like a consistent thing, but sometimes she would go to Christian church and sometimes I would tag along because they'd give me candy or I'd get to sing songs.
1: Presbyterian?
2: I I couldn't tell you much about that. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember. We don't know. Yeah, they just. There was
1: a cross. Yeah. Yeah,
3: Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and so there was this, there was definitely an idea of goodness and maybe even like Mm a background belief in something bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. That was, that, that for me came more through my mom. And then as I grew older, like high school, university, I developed a curiosity to learn more about life and consciousness and the universe, I was like, I just wanted to know what was true and lasting. So around like, yeah, late high school, early university years, I, um, I started keeping a journal since I was 15, but I went on this like search, research period where every opportunity I had, I would talk to say, for example, the priest at the Shinto shrine to ask him about this, the, the symbolism behind um, because it's like nature worship, right? The different five yeah. elements and all of things. Like and then,
1: yeah, tying a thread around a tree or something like that.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Or they would use water, and they would use fire, they would use incense smoke, yeah. they would use bells, and right. you know, um, and they're and a lot of times they don't really speak about it or they don't explain it, they mm-hmm. just do it, you know. So hmm. I was quite fascinated with all of that stuff at some point. I also had a period of time where I was like interviewing my grandpa because I wanted to learn everything he remembered about his parents or my ancestry, Um, and then my grandma and I would write these things in a notebook and stuff like that. So the curiosity was there. I remember when I first started asking my paternal grandpa about my ancestry and lineage and stuff like that, he said to me. This was in my first year in university. He said to me, mei ga, mei ni ga kita, which is like this big Japanese word I didn't know back then, but something about um, me having developed a reverence for the divine and ancestry. Okay. Oh, wow. He pointed that out in me, it tells mm. me that he had it in him. In mm-hmm. His- mm-hmm. It was never yeah. explained to me. It was never like um, obvious and like uh, like like a, what do you call those um, altar? We didn't have like an altar in our home right. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Little snippets like that, I guess, tell me that my grandpa certainly had that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's an interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. I
1: mean, that was yeah. that was the w- one thing I truly I think learned about my year about myself in my year in Korea teaching English was that um, I did not have that same reverence towards uh, our seniors. You know, Mm -hmm. I had been taught to be irreverent in every conversation. You were
2: taught
1: that? Sure, that's that's what being well, it's American modeled. that's what being American's all about is being <laughs> irreverent and you know shitting on people is everyone otherwise,
3: right?
1: Yeah, you like when people talk in my family, you 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 talk over them and tell a better story than they had. <laughs> that's sure. you know, so you're constantly uh competing and shitting on the person next to you in a competitive way. Whereas uh I found that uh the whole situation in Korea was quite different.
2: Yeah. So, so it's really interesting to hear that because um, even though I was born and raised in Tokyo, Tokyo area anyway, um, because I grew up going to international school, my upbringing mm-hmm. and my formative years have been spent in a completely different way than the average mainstream, like Japanese education.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember – It was my first year in high school. It was my freshman year in high school. My English teacher, he's definitely not going to be listening, Mr. Esenberg. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You never know. If he's out there, we apologize,
1: (laughs) sir, for what's about to be said.
2: (laughs) It was just something impactful. Um, It was my first English class in the freshman year, I think. And, um, you know, like... In a school context, the teacher stands in front of the room and, you know, teaches out of the textbook and, um, yeah, teaches you stuff and you're supposed to sit there and learn and absorb. But in my freshman year in high school, first English class, he quote unquote taught and spoke and said what he said. And then at the end of all of that, he said, um, doubt me. He said, doubt me.
1: Ah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's gonna be different from your from your Japanese teacher.
2: Basically he like said, um, before you I, I just said everything I said, and but now before you digest and absorb all of this information, doubt me first, you know, challenge me, doubt the truth in it first and see for yourself, you know, think with your own mind, see for yourself what you want to um let influence you, right? And mm-hmm. That kind of experience um, stuck with me, whereas in a more culturally Japanese context, the Mm -hmm. student does not speak unless the student does not question, the student does not doubt, Mm -hmm. the student does not interrupt, the student does not chat the hierarchy of you know vertical superiority or who the hell are you like you're this yeah you know like that's a completely different dynamic mm-hmm. um which i you know from the get-go i think have had my own challenges um uh navigating through because i did start working in Japanese society as soon as I finished university, right? So I did have right. to navigate those, and I sucked that at first. But um, <laughs> You're um, questioning everything. <laughs> well, yeah, I was questioning everything, and I swear to every I don't know, Japanese person I work with, particularly male and particularly older, I think they yeah. must have thought I was just like this complete... know american bitch they never want to see my fucking face again you know
1: like (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: yeah can you
1: you say that exactly in japanese (laughs) i don't know you can't
2: can't. i can't curse in japanese you guys i can't
1: be
2: i don't have those colors to paint with and
1: oh my goodness
2: that's fascinating yeah, isn't it so it's so and it kind of yeah. like tiny. you can probably imagine because it, no, there, in there's
1: Cantonese like a- there's certainly that 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 paint box exists <laughs> in
2: Cantonese. and you, would know. And you would know. <laughs> right no yeah no
1: that
2: doesn't really that doesn't really happen in Japanese so so it gives me this slither of a sense like am I being two-faced because here I'm like so pristine and whatever and like you know, uh, compact, and, and then here I'm all like colorful as hell. And, you know, it, it, can't, it can't completely be merged. I just have to have multiple palettes around that, you
3: know? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: totally, yeah.
0: totally. Do you think that this, um, I guess, like this sort of ideal student that, you know, is the student sort of ideal that is um, – you know that the Japanese student steps into where they're not questioning the teacher and they're listening and just like going through the, the you know teachings or the routine without, like having that doubt or having that sense of of um, autonomy or that sense of authority. Do you think that it's still the same today as when you were in school and growing up, or do you think that culture is is shifting a little because of the like world influence is so much more you know everything's so much more connected yeah. now culturally in a sense that we're sharing a lot of traits
1: we're certainly much more much worse in the united states than we were 30 years ago we're much well, the- more violently critical <laughs>
2: I guess the first thing I have to say is that this this vertical hierarchy, like student-teacher dynamic that never mm-hmm. goes like, it's not just that, that that hierarchy that stays intact. There's another aspect that always inevitably happens, and it's, it's that the student, it's not just that the student remains like under control. It's that the student silently, not all the time, but very often, the student silently gathers knowledge about how the system works. Mm. What I mean oh. by that is that they gain their internal wisdom and, oh, it's not going to work for me to challenge this guy. But I have observed the system function this way for however many years, and that's the route I'm going to take.
0: Like So, right. that's why so when I get in that position, I'm going to then have the authority to... Mm-hmm to like implement that same power structure is that what yeah. you mean?
2: Um not necessarily. It's it's um it's that you you don't necessarily eventually like when you get out of school or when you get out of that mm-hmm. company or that industry or whatever it is that you don't limit yourself to pre-existing structure. Right? Uh okay. Right. So that's so freedom, one freedom like
0: that- exists outside of that structure in a sense.
2: Well, and they're just not going to be the kind of people that's going to waste energy challenging a system that's designed right. to be down, <laughs> Right.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Yes. That's, that's one aspect of, um, I suppose you can call it, wisdom or knowledge that de- develops as right. an option of such structure, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then culturally, Um, I do feel that in the last, I would say, two decades or so, gradually, eventually, um, things are shifting because of the internet and because of a more global Mm -hmm. culture and, um, yeah, people with um, experiences and foreign cultures and um, countries coming back and sort of, there's a little bit more of, like, a mixture. But Mm -hmm. all in all, like... All in all it's um it's a very unique place I mean japan is, <laughs> yeah. You <know>? oh yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's special, it's-
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. what I always think is so interesting, um, like as an outsider looking in, is I heard there was a saying, you know, like the um what is it? The nail that sticks up gets the hammer, right? So there's that like,
2: <laughs> I have been so hammered. I have been so um and it and it used to hurt like honestly, really it yeah. it wounded me until I realized that I was just gonna go on being my fabulous self anyway. And <laughs> yes. that's those are decisions that you make, I think in any culture mm-hmm. or any place. Um, yeah. About your authenticity and your integrity and what that means to you, and how willing or unwilling you are to um, negotiate that, right for whatever mm-hmm. totally yeah um and and yeah, like you said, it kind of goes hand in hand with the changing times as well. So mm-hmm. I don't think I could have done what I'm doing now like even ten years ago or even five years ago, so right, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. yeah and more of the others
0: the other unique thing about the culture is that there's so many like little subcultures within the culture that are so different and like you know very much not in the like norm in a way but they've created like their own norm that then fits into the norm you know like the superhero people who dress up like superheroes or like they when they get into something they're so into something even like the ashtanga yoga people are like so into ashtanga yoga and it's not at all maybe normal for the culture but like there's room for these little subcultures to be normal within the norms of the higher culture and then there's like norms within those
2: Cultures. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like sub niches. I think it's uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of almost like a survival mechanism as well. You have to huddle together, you know, in order to maintain being different. Yeah, yes,
0: yeah. Mm, That's yummy. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Hmm.
0: It's very fascinating. I,
1: I'm I'm interested in in um learning more about how you you came to be. Uh, a yoga superstar and <laughs> yoga uh, shala owner and, and the fabulous, uh, uh, it's-
0: May Yoshikawa it, that she is.
1: May Yoshikawa <laughs> that she is. I, I think, um, and I don't know if this is too personal to talk about. I think that you were um, 20 years ago, maybe you were struggling because you, your, your mother was ill. And I think that might be the, the moment when you started thinking about doing a yoga practice. I wonder if do you, if you feel comfortable, if you could talk to us about that.
2: Sure. So when I was 17 and my mom was 47, um, my parents had just uh, gotten divorced. And after some 26 years of marriage and four kids wow. and what seems from the outside to be a perfect sort of family. Um, and that just shattered. And um, it, was, it was really hard for me, but also for my mom, for my dad, and for everyone. And then a couple of years after that, my mother developed a very rare neurological disorder, which uh, um, caused the shrinking of the right hemisphere of her brain. Um, we first discovered it in the form of amnesia as well as um, a lack of 3D recognition, meaning she could have a glass of water in front of her face, reach with her hand to grab it, but miss it completely. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was followed by memory loss short-term at first, and then eventually a little bit more. But so get this, so my mother, uh, half Japanese and half American, you know, super young onset, right? Being 47 years old and developing this rare neurological disorder that was shrinking the right hemisphere of her brain happened to also be a lefty. So with all of these things things in the mix, um, it took her, it took us nine different university hospitals over the course of two full years to um, reach a diagnosis. Which they called atypical Alzheimer type dementia, and that was just purely so that they could begin to administer the right medication for her under insurance. Mm-hmm. But the doctor, the, the last doctor was the one who was honest enough to tell us they couldn't uh, be sure what, what exactly was going on with her. But but they mm-hmm. they guessed, they speculated that the you know Caucasian aspect of her bloodline um, may have contributed to the young onset, right? Because it's just, mm. it's just so rare in the Asian blood. Yeah. Like so, um, yeah. So all of these things started happening for me when I, between the age of 17 and 19 was like the initial two years. And 19 was when she reached the diagnosis, at which point they also, uh, they also said that this would be terminal. So they said that she would have 10 years to live tops. Wow, Um, And that, you know, obviously she would spend these 10 years in decline, that the medication would slow the progress of um, of the disease for the initial two years. And then after that, they wouldn't be able to do much. So I, along with my family and my mother herself, um, watched her deteriorate from a person who was this vibrant, beautiful modeling, child raising, goddess-like figure to someone who couldn't look me in the eyes um, because she couldn't, uh, her brain couldn't recognize that. Um, she might not be able to call my name because she might call me my sister's name.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Or um, yeah, she, um, she just started to lose what I used to call the normal mom abilities, you know, normal Mm -hmm. human, normal mom abilities. And so around by the age of 20, I had massive questions, unspoken questions bubbling up in my mind. And they said things like, how many more times can she call my name and actually recognize me? Mm -hmm. They said my questions, the questions in my mind, they said Mm -hmm. things like, if my mom can't recognize me anymore, um, what else is left of her? You know If she loses all of her abilities, is she still my mom? Or what is a person?
1: What, what is, is a person?
2: What is a person? What is the human consciousness minus the abilities that we all take for granted? And mm. then I asked, why? Why, why? Why her? Why me? Why us? Why now? Why this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these questions at such a young age, very quickly drove me ill. I was a depressed insomniac going mad in my head at the the age of 20, right? Because I had nowhere to take these questions to. Um... And uh, so I, w- I actually went to a doctor first. I was like, I need help. And uh, my 20-year-old self, um, I-, I had a slightly older boyfriend at the time, and he was very kind, very gentle. And he came with me to go and see a doctor. And the doctor prescribed for me antidepressants and sleeping pills. And uh, I'm sure that they could be very helpful for some people. But for me, I am... Um, it didn't make sense that I might, I might uh, suppress the symptoms by using medication without addressing the cause of whatever was mm. malfunctioning me, right? So I went for a second opinion, but the second doctor yeah. also prescribed for me antidepressants and sleeping pills and then, but that's after me having gone to nine different university hospitals with, with, for my mom. Right. So I had already like distrust with the medical industry. And so by the time I got the second prescription, I was like, You guys are in with big pharma. Like I'm not giving you my money. right?"
3: Right.
2: So I um so in my own way, for better or for worse, I just didn't know. I just didn't know. But I I just I didn't go for the prescription medicine either. But I was sick. I needed help. I was in pieces. And it was from that dark place where I just thought to myself, I'm so freaking unhealthy. I need to do something. And then um, one summer, it was the summer of 2000. Um, I was attending a wedding with with my boyfriend at the time, whose best friend was um, having this like Italian wedding in Italy. And... Uh, <laughs> And at this party, I'm super depressed, you know, but I was at this party and I vaguely remember um, just really needing to um, find something to make me even a little bit healthier. I was that desperate. And I remember looking around like the party scene, just saying, well, she kind of looks healthy. Like, yeah, she looks healthy. She looks like she must be doing some kind of training. And I'm not normally like a social type. But I went up to this girl who turned out to be this Aussie girl. And I said to her, "Um, hey, what kind of training do you do? Because you look really healthy and you have beautiful legs. Like, what kind of training Mm -hmm. do you do? And that's when she said, that was when she said to me, I do Pilates three times a week. And I said, I said, what? because I had never heard of Pilates before. Pilates was in Japan at the time. And she said to me, um, well, Pilates is um, similar to yoga, but we use more equipment and stuff to train our core, but it's similar to yoga. And that was her description of Pilates to me. I -hmm. I got back to Tokyo that summer, looked everywhere for Pilates, which I couldn't find, (laughs) not been imported into Japan yet. Then Mm -hmm. I remember that she said that um, Pilates was similar to yoga, so that's how I started looking for yoga. (laughs) I could have been a Pilates teacher, guys, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) it could have gone the other way. Yeah. Did you find Ken's studio, or what's what place did you find? What was your first <laughs> yoga experience yeah. like?
2: So back, so this is okay. So summer of two thousand. Well, this is must be the beginning of two thousand and one or something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. In all of the Tokyo metropolitan area, I could only find three studios. Three. There's like hundreds and thousands now, but I could only find three twenty years ago. And one was going to be too far to commute to from where I lived, so I gave up on that one. And then the other two, I uh, took my bike out to, and, and I thought I'd just try them both. And one was like, do you remember, did you guys have this in the West too? Where like back in the day, like yoga was for like older women in leotards, like ballerina looking Yes, guys?
1: <laughs> many Oh my
2: God. Many
1: women, t- we- Many students tell us this about their first yoga experience with okay, women so in leotards. Yeah. So
2: I was a university girl. I was like in my second or third year <laughs> in university, and then I, the first studio I went to was like that whole like grandmas and leotard sort of thing. And I mm. thought, whoa, um, I, I just didn't feel like I fit in the seat. Mm. Like, talk about the, the nail that sticks out that gets hammered down. Like, I just. <laughs> They must have been like three times my age easily, right? So then I was like, okay, that wasn't the place. (sighs) So I went went to the other side. I went to the other um, studio, which was Ken Harakuma's studio. And then he his studio was called International Yoga Center. So me having come from a more international background, it seemed to, you know, m- maybe sound a little better, but I remember mm-hmm. the first time I entered into uh, his studio, I was too freaked out to go by myself. So I took mm-hmm. my sister with me, not my second mm-hmm. sister, the sister who's 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, And and so my oldest sister, right? She's really funny. Like she's, um, how do you call it? In Japanese, I would call it like shufu konjo. But sometimes when you're like, I don't know, a mom or you're looking after like household affairs and you want to get the best deal on everything you ever purchased. So Uh, yeah. She's like want- a
0: bargain shopper.
2: <laughs> okay. She's a total bargain shopper. So we walk into this studio. It's the first time. We've never done any ashtanga or any yoga. We've, you know, nothing. And she walks in and she purchases like a set of 11 tickets because you can get it for the price of 10 or something. Like before, before we try anything, right? <laughs> now here's the other thing the first class I ever tried at Ken's studio was primary series led why Why? because it's called primary so I thought it was just like
1: primary easy but at
2: the time, it is but it's at the time, easy time, one, yeah. like the highest level ashtanga offered yeah. like in, in japan in right in japan yeah right <laughs> we didn't know my poor sister had no clue and then we get like i don't know put in this place with heavy breathing foreign people just going <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> you know? mm, that's company. amazing and then, you know, we go through this motion. Now I've been pretty athletic, like in my middle school, high school years. But of, of course, at this point I was, I had hit a new low, you know, in terms of my health. Right. But, but I was wiped out in like the first, less than the first 15 minutes. And yeah. I internally was astonished what little control I had over the synchronicity of breath and movement. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. And I remember Ken coming up to me and saying, this is enough for today. You may lie down and take rest. Oh I, no. was I was appalled. I was like, I paid for the freaking 90 minute class, yo, for one. <laughs> I only got to like take the first 15 minute bite. However, I was so wiped That all I could do is just be like, okay, fine. You know, I'm just going to lie down and I don't care about these four breathing next to me. And I'll just lie down on this mat. Now, I don't even remember my sister at this point. So (laughs) forgive me, sister, for putting you in that context. But see, this is what happened. I lay down to rest and I near fell asleep. Now, I Mm -hmm. had not only been depressed, but I had been a depressed insomniac. Right. Over a year by then. Oh, you so fell asleep. I almost fell like asleep. I couldn't with yeah. the horses, but I. <laughs> you know
1: that was my nickname in Korea was Horse Face. <laughs> That's interesting.
3: Are you being serious?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Also in Taiwan, uh, also Horse Face Maerto in uh, Taiwan. I forget how to say Horse Head in. Uh, korea oh it'll come to me
2: okay but we digress (laughs) we digress
0: yes so So you almost fall asleep and you're absolutely (laughs) amazed right
2: well i'm like whoa this shit works (laughs) and then my sister as we're exiting the studio my sister's like here you can have these i'm never going to use them again and gives me <laughs> the nine tickets that she had just invested yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Wow. And so you, you went back. You were like,
0: okay, I'm I'm gonna do this. I'm not gonna be afraid. I'm going back.
2: <laughs> well well, and I know you have this um, something similar, Harmony, is that um, like I said, it worked. I if yeah. you know, if yeah. you're really depressed. And if you're yeah. like a serious insomniac and you've yeah. tried everything yeah. you can and you're desperate and something works, you're going to go back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? For sure. And mm-hmm. that was me. Oh, I also want to add, though, that, see, there's a little bit of an overlap, see, between my story and Vasha's. Because right oh, as yeah. I was starting was when Vasha was um, not maybe. Just before she had started teaching alongside Ken, or right when she was um, just beginning. Oh, that's
1: right. Yeah, yeah. We should cut that Basha part out. That's a good idea.
0: <laughs> no, it's too late.
2: No, it's yeah. good.
0: Yeah. So she had just started, like assisting, or was just about to start assisting.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, and this is like, like the first time, um, like around the first. Yeah, I think around the first year that Ken started a Morning Mysore program. And um, when Ken and Basha, maybe a year after that, first started experimentally their um, teacher training course and things like that. I was like one of the guinea pigs in the first group because there were a few of us, right? So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I completely adored and thoroughly looked up to Basia from the get-go, um, not just mm-hmm. for anything that she is, but also because um, she was like this um, female person I could talk to about um, my period or, or my non-existent yeah. period. Stopped after your mm-hmm. bond was like, you know, bumping <laughs> on and all of that. And Basia's like, yeah, don't worry about it, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs>
3: so,
2: um yeah, but really, really um, inspirational and completely life changing. She, she was, she definitely played a role in like um, a year after that when I started getting curious about changing my diet and experimenting with um, vegetarianism, um, and then eventually like raw foods and stuff like that, like um, juice fasting. She was the one who guided me through my first juice fast and stuff like that. Oh amazing
1: were you aware that uh ken was half taiwanese
2: yeah of course
1: and was that something that <laughs> uh a, appealed to you that uh or was that was that a part of the experience for you or is it just a, a like a nothing burger
2: what's a nothing burger but i don't want to go down that road <laughs> I think it only mattered to the extent that he and his approach to learning as well as to teaching was diverse, mm-hmm.
3: coming from yeah.
2: a, a hugely homogenous culture, right? Yeah. He offered, this yeah. um, 20 years ago and even before then, him and his former wife, right? Um, when they mm-hmm. first started the International Yoga Center, they opened it for the international community in Tokyo. Right. Yeah. So I think that um, gave me somewhat of like more of like a second home feel as opposed to like um, a more fixed learning environment. So, it, yeah, right. it gave me more, a little bit more of like a warmer family feel.
0: Yeah, um, and it probably
2: felt very
0: um, like what you were used to going to international school and like a little bit more freedom.
2: Yeah. And then my, the friends that I made at the yoga studio were, I mean, for, in my case, almost always, actually every single time, always, they were older than me, more experienced. Um, but they were from all walks of life. Like there were lawyers and producers and I don't know, teachers and speakers and dancers and, you know, people, you don't just meet at school. So that was really fascinating. And also, um, yeah, a year or two after that, when, as Ken started to invite and host more of these traveling teachers, mm-hmm. um, they used to ask me to translate. Oh, and I yeah. To, so I used to think to myself, like, because I was just like this, I don't know, um, student. I didn't have money. Um, and I wouldn't have paid. I wouldn't have had the money to, like, pay and attend these workshops as a student, Right. But they were yeah. willing to pay me to be there
0: to mm-hmm. uh,
2: amazing yeah so, so
0: i i um I did some of those in the
2: beginning as well,
0: it's so it's- amazing it's so it's such a great experience to be a translator because you get to hear everything in one language, you know in English, and then you get to kind of like move it into Japanese, and then you also get really close with the teacher you're translating with mm-hmm. too so it's it's such a like unique kind of experience, I think.
2: It's a unique experience. The pros and the cons, (laughs) like everything else, are just always both there. But in terms of translating for yoga, um, I think, um, if I may say so myself, I'm good at translating vibration. I'm good at translating Mm. intention. I'm good at translating meaning. So if you put in a translator that's gonna be translating language, you're gonna funnel through a lot less than someone who's right. willing to listen in on the intention and the meaning and the vibration of it, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, and I had to learn these things as I went along, but I quickly learned that each teacher brought along with him or her, not just the wisdom you know, of their mm-hmm. experience and, and learning, but they brought with them an air of a mode of operation. So, um, because when you're teaching yoga and I know that both of you do this naturally, um, when, cause when you're teaching yoga, you're not teaching from a text, even if you're teaching through Upanishads or like Gita or whatever sutras, you're not teaching the text. You're using the text as like vibrational markers that tap into, um, a memory or, or or some can I say like a current of higher consciousness,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right and, and you're mm-hmm. you're kind of materializing it into the room and into the experience mm-hmm. and through your hands. now, some of this stuff is spoken, a lot of it is not, mm-hmm. but all of it is expressed, it's sometimes radiated, it's sometimes um. Just sitting in silence, or you know. But I, I learned through experience that I. Um, well, I guess an example works better. So, for example, like uh, this traveling teacher with thirty years of experience would come in, and I would just this twenty-one-year-old me would be placed as a, as a translator, and I'm thinking to myself like, oh, like shoot, am I going to be good enough? Like, you know, I don't want to take anything away from the experience of the students that I paid and gathered. Like, you know, so I walk in there like slightly nervous and slightly freaked out. But the best thing I can do is say, okay, well, Lord, help me. I'm really just going to be here, be present and really tune into whatever the message of this person is that they want to convey. So that would be like, (laughs) my. immature prayer going into this, but I learned that that was the best thing you can offer. The best thing I can offer to make myself available to that energy. Mm -hmm. And then here's the second thing that I learned through experience. None of this was explained to me. As I tune into that teacher and I make myself available to that energy, I learned that they are tuning into something way bigger. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like Every mantra or yeah.
3: like every
2: opening intention or every good yoga teacher, every solid yoga <laughs> teacher is not going to be teaching from the small self. You're going to be yeah. taking a moment to tune into something much bigger. And so I was exposed mm-hmm. to that from quite early on. And I think in hindsight, that's, um, that was a fascinating experience. Also, at the same time, there were times where, um, uh, and I can say this with with uh, total love and adoration. I remember, like, do you remember when um, Chuck and Monty used to teach together? Yep. I don't know if you ever yeah. learned from them. So I don't think, yeah. I, yeah, I may have been in a couple of their classes, but I remember um, being assigned as translator, and it was such an honor. And I, you know love the experience and all, but oh, like having t- the, the two of them powerhouses in the room. and then like, and that all the students will be in downward dog or something looking down and then like Chuck would say something and then Madi would be like giving him a face like, you know, or like, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know there was like some other stuff going on there and, and I just, you know, that kind of stuff was like beyond me. So,
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're like, should <laughs> I
2: say it? Shouldn't I say it? What do I do now? That's <laughs> the thing about yeah, me I... being this cultural hybrid. I knew what to say and what not to say because I have an understanding of how it will be received by the Japanese students. Right. Yes.
3: So in yes. my own
2: way, I got good at um, mm-hmm. translating that energy in a way that's best palatable to the Japanese students.
3: Right mm-hmm. I, I
2: often like and also for the first however many years, I would also translate for Sharat when he started coming to Tokyo and, and doing the conferences. yeah, amazing yeah it's
1: interesting. When I was in Taiwan, I had a often had a Malaysian translator um, who was translating to a Taiwanese audience. And the Taiwanese audience is very playful and yeah. up for anything, whereas the Malaysian, is you know that's a that's a islamic country mm-hmm. and she would struggle translating my sense of humor to the <laughs> taiwanese audience
3: yeah you're the taiwanese so
1: audience, yeah taiwanese audience most of them were speaking english anyway the
0: malaysian audience you mean
1: the taiwanese audience oh. most of them were were oh
0: speaking english so they understood
1: most of them was yeah. like you're not translating how <laughs> foul that was
0: yeah
3: we <laughs> because know. that
1: was really that was really <laughs> rough what he just said and you're not <laughs> You're not, you're yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, and you, and you thank them for it, right? Because then your classes sell better. Because if if they don't this, it's true. oh, like, seriously.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: true. Yeah. People will, like walk away like that was bad. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. It's interesting, yeah. but to your other to your other more deeper point, there's truly um, a sense when the class is going well that you are funneling information to an audience in the most in 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 a such a truly creative way that the material of art is speech and it's just transmitting through you and there's a flow and it was one of the great joys for harmony and i to teach together is that we would often go into this flow state together and blend right. and 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 uh, transmit
0: right but also to your point if the two teachers are not in uh harmony shall we say it can be like really disjointed right (laughs) right
2: Right. and if you and it's one thing to do it like you know a single workshop you know but if you have like an ongoing workshop for two weeks or something like that then for me as a translator (laughs) it would expose me to those energies So I, so then I learned that um, I I suppose I preferred some experiences and some teachers over others and, you know, and that's not a better or worse situation, but just a matter of what uh, meshes with my energy, you know, in a more comfortable way or not. So, yeah. And then after a while, um, yeah, it was, it was like, okay, enough. (laughs) Like I just, I didn't, uh, I kind of. Um, veered away from translating for people,
3: yeah,
0: and so when did you become the supermodel yogini cover magazine?
2: So you have to understand that I would like so not be this supermodel thingy that you claim I am um for one thing, because yogini was, was not like a major publication um it was in the yoga world. <laughs> That's what I mean. I want to be clear that the yoga world, is pretty small, guys. You know, let's yeah. wake up. To it. It's pretty small. <laughs> okay? So let's. But I don't um, think
1: I could walk down the street with you and not be like swamped with with fans. Is is that inaccurate?
2: It depends how um, close you might be walking to me, because if we're too close, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> No, 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 no. So here, I can totally, like, I'm totally unrecognizable, like, like <laughs> 99%. <laughs> Seriously. No, but, yeah, but there's little, me too. Little, there's little pockets. Like, yeah. if I'm, I can't, so if that's, this is one thing that I miss you guys. I can't really go to yoga classes here anymore because
3: right. yeah, oh, they, you're they-
2: well, well, no, like the younger generation, I don't think they've even seen Yogini magazine or at least not in my era. So then they don't really um, know me. But if I want to go to like, like, I don't know, like a decent <laughs> yoga class where I can be a student, that dynamic usually doesn't work because then I, I think my presence makes the teacher really nervous. You know,
1: right. Like, oh, yeah. Because yeah, also,
0: yeah. you're a se- probably a senior teacher to yeah. that so, teacher so as yeah. well. So, there's that dynamic going on too. Yeah,
1: yeah forget yeah. it. Or,
2: yeah. So, yeah. Or, or either that, like I've been, they've been in my class or they've learned directly or indirectly mm-hmm. from me at one point, or they've always seen me in a magazine or in advertisements or whatever. So, they have an image of me that's not necessarily me who I truly am. And that mm-hmm. stuff just it's in the way. So um, I I haven't uh, walked into any random yoga class here in Japan for ages. I love doing that when I'm abroad, you know, just walking. An ordinary yoga girl, but I haven't done that in a long time here. Yeah,
0: but that was a long, that was a, that was a good magazine. Was it Japan's first yoga magazine or was Yoga Journal there?
2: No, so Yoga Journal did not enter Japan until 2005. So, Yogini was started in, well, so prior to Yogini, they had a different name, and it was supposed to be a single-issue magazine. It was called Yoga de Simple Beauty Life, like a simple beauty, a simple and beautiful life with yoga or something like that.
3: Mm. And that was in
2: 2003. It was supposed to be single-issue. They just needed, like, I don't know, a decent-looking person who could do decent postures that would make a cover. Um, Yeah. And I was placed there because in 2003, it's just yoga wasn't really common here. So there weren't many people doing it for one. And then there weren't many people who could do like the more beautiful looking postures for the poses, but, right? Yeah. So <laughs> well, we did that, we did that single issue. And it just sold a lot better than anybody ever expected. So they were like, let's make another one. And then the second one sold even better. And so then from the third issue, that's when they said, okay, let's rename this Yogini, make it into a quarterly magazine. And then for the first 10 years, they kept me on the cover.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It was was such a beautiful magazine. It was like... I feel like it was so artistic. Always the, the photos that I saw were so well right. done and just gorgeous, right. like works of art.
1: Were you on every cover?
2: Every cover for 10 every years. Every cover. Yeah, special issues and the quarterly issues. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> but then they,
0: they closed, right? They, they transitioned into something else in 2013. Well, Is
2: that well, true? So after two, 2013, after 10 years... Mm -hmm. Um, there, there was, I think they made it, were they issuing it like, uh, once every two months, they, they changed the issuance. They maintained the magazine with a different girl on the cover for a while, but I recently heard that they're not in print anymore. So I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. And I, I heard that this year I haven't kept so up to date, but, um, yeah. I don't know if that means they're going to go digital like everyone else, but I know, I know that they're currently not in print. Yeah.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah. But more importantly though, I have to squeeze in that. Um, so the, the early issues in 2003 and then Yogini itself maybe started in 2004. And since after the first premiere issue, me, I think I must have been like 23 and freshly out of university at the time. It was my idea. Like I went to the editor and said to him that I wanted to write for the magazine because it wasn't enough for me to be in the pictures as a model and, and express yoga that way. I wanted to, have a voice. I wanted to let people know about the inside of what yoga was doing to me and how it was changing my mind and my consciousness and my body and my life. And, and so I went up to him and I said, um, yeah, that I want to write something. And then the editor, he was like,
3: And I was like, oh, just,
2: you know just and I kept asking him like I told him it was my dream I said that it was my dream to write and then he was like mm, I'll think about it and finally when he got back to me he said you know what if it's about you and how you started yoga and how it's changing your life I think the readers will be interested so why don't you give it a go and that was the first time I wrote anything that was published um in, in one of the early issues in 2004. And I ended up penning a column th- yeah. in this magazine for 10 years. So that was my kind of like really small contribution to be able to express yoga, not just as some doing a physical asana, but that mm. the asana was a method of um, just deeper changes from within. And it was so important to me that I express that through my voice. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I think, I mean, I can only imagine that 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 column and your experience and and all of that really, I mean, molded and moved the yoga culture in Japan at that time, that, you know, your experimentation with juice fasting or going vegan or raw food you know, everyone's like, okay, I want to do that too. I need to, you know, do that as well. And so it was like kind of, they were on a journey with you, I would assume. Right.
2: It's true. It's true. And also, so Yoga Journal was first published in Japan in 2005. So just shortly thereafter. And Yoga Journal had a system where they would um, translate some of the articles from the U.S. issue. And then they would write some of the articles up here in Japan and usually typically put like a more celebrity type person um On the cover for mm-hmm. sales um, mm-hmm. but they their approach was much more can i say like more westernized or even americanized um yoga like mm-hmm. uh like a fitness yoga if I should say mm-hmm. I mean, not completely thoroughly, but just as a generalization um so with with yogini was a little bit more um i don't know it was kind of like. It did its own thing, and the team—the yeah. the team that created the cover and like the um, the main editorial pages and stuff—aside from myself, they were all male. The wow. editor, the the editor, um, photographer, hair makeup artist, and the fashion stylist, the assistants, they were all male, pretty much every single time. Um, and wow. then they. They had never done yoga. They didn't know. Right? But they just had ideas about the world of yoga. And (laughs) so very often, like even from our first shoots, from our first photo shoots, they would ask me, um, what it was like or how does it feel and I would tell them my experiences and sometimes even before we start the shoot I'd be like hey do you want to try and I would get them to like all do Surya Namaskar or something yeah. and they'd be like oh man I'm too sore, I'm too sore to do this mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing so it was really like I mean it, and mind you the whole thing was like super low budget like for most all of the 10 years that I was involved with them so we were never like this fancy crew, the, the People and their careers are thoroughly fancy. But the the magazine itself and the project that we were involved in, it was such Mm. a grassroots, organic, like how do we create art around yoga? But they were more like originally like fashion people and beauty and cosmetics people. So they thrived. In working on a project where they can experience, they can, they can express something bigger than a two-dimensional world, right? It yeah. was like, it became more like an art project for us.
0: Yeah, it really was. It was, it was stunning, stunning magazine in that way is I just want to ask when I couldn't read the articles cuz you know no.
1: <laughs> I don't read Japanese. You didn't have the Google phone where you can just <laughs> no, look at the I text. No, I don't think that was available it. then,
0: the translator no, app.
1: That's a shame. <laughs> I wonder if the two of you could talk about when you met cuz I think this mm-hmm. is pretty much the 2003, 2004. This is I'm imagining this is about when you when your relationship started when you the two of you cuz I've always known you guys as friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, I I met May at Randy's house as your friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is my friend May. This is my friend May. Yeah.
2: Especially because I'm for the most part, and especially in India, I should add, I have not known or made myself known to be a social person, period.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? It's not it's not mm-hmm. so common that she would see me at a big lunch, talking and yapping to people mm. in the, of the coconut skin and drinking thigh like that. Drinking <laughs> I just wasn't really there. Um, why was I not there? Purely out of choice. I was in India to immerse myself in the practice. I was not there to talk. I was not there to, like, I don't know, find a new mate. Like, I was not there for that whole <laughs> thing. So for better oh, or for worse, you know, I just – So I, misguided. Um, really? Seriously? No.
1: I'm teasing because that was exactly why I was there.
2: No, it
0: wasn't. I was there to find
1: <laughs> mates and I was there to talk as much as I could.
0: Well, that's that's like a blanket statement for <laughs> life. Everywhere I go. <laughs> so I think I, the first time we met, though, May was in Thailand, actually. Hey,
2: do you remember, Harmony? I manifested you. Yeah. So, this is what happened. (laughs) I started going to India um, in 2004.
1: So, Mm -hmm. in order
2: to go fly into Bangalore from Tokyo, or very often at that time, I would fly out from Fukuoka in the western, southwestern region in Japan. um, I would fly through Bangkok to Mm -hmm. Bangalore because there is no direct flight. And then, and I would make these trips usually twice a year. And Often alone, um, and sometimes with my then partner. And we would go yeah, back and forth, but I just kept, I got so used to keeping to myself. And then, um, yeah, but I, I did also see that people were making friends and, you know, meeting nice people and, you know, doing <laughs> that And so finally, one year, I literally, like I said to myself, I said in my heart, I'm ready for a new friend. I'm ready for a new friend. And then it was literally like two days later, you know, we were flying through Bangkok and then we stopped by Koh Samui. Yeah. Um, and that's when I met Ia. you. Say, I know.
3: You said yeah.
1: we? Yeah.
2: <clears throat> right. Me and my
3: grand
0: partner. Yes. Okay. And we uh, we hit it off immediately and we were both Gemini. Yeah. <laughs> We what? had so many like little similarities and commonalities. You mar- and you both married we Russell. You was- <laughs> we were then partner too, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, my then partner as well. Mm. And then, <laughs> and then you were on your way to Mysore, and I was on my way to Mysore shortly after. And so then we we got to hang out in Mysore, and and it was. And I
2: was like, yes, I scored a new fun. friend.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we had such a such a nice time. And and then many, many crossover trips after that. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then,
2: of course, um, yeah, just a a few years of really getting to know each other through the time that we shared in Mysore and through the practice and um, and often like one on one or in like smaller group Mm contexts. Cause I, I'm like yeah. usually just nervous and like, I don't know. I don't like to eat when there's like more than four people at the table cause it makes me nervous. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then, uh, after that, um, pregnancies, right? Like I was pregnant yes. with Issa and then you were pregnant with Jadia and yeah, yeah. So cool yeah. I remember when
0: you brought Issa to our training in 2010 and he was, gosh, he must have been about six months then.
1: Yeah. Remember
2: this in Thailand. Yeah. No, 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 in, in, in India. Mysore. In my sort May. You oh, yes. and I were <laughs>
1: hanging out a lot because you were bringing the baby over to Randy Uncle's house, uh-huh. and we were like, uh, like having lunch all the time. That was so fun.
2: Right.
0: And then, and I was like two months pregnant at the time. I think two about months. Two months. You're Not yeah. telling anyone. Yeah, it was secret. I think you secret, were the first secret. person I told, actually.
2: Wow. <laughs> oh, yes. But there is the Russell connection in my family line. Oh. <laughs> is that You're the
1: name that of weird. your grandfather?
2: Actually, my mother's maiden name is Russell.
1: Oh, so is was so, so is my <laughs>
2: grandmother's. And
0: oh, my grandmother's serious? maiden name is Russell, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's weird. Alexandra Russell is Harmony's grandmother.
2: My great grandmother. So my Jacqueline mother
1: Russell is your mother is your grandmother. Yeah.
2: My mother is uh, Revlon Russell, and my Revlon. mother my like makeup. Right, and That's she amazing. modeled. Her, she modeled for years for Shiseido, so they couldn't use her name. They had to change her name. <laughs>
3: but um,
2: yeah. So my mother's uh, father, Robert Russell. From
3: Tacoma, Washington. Uh, Oh. Wow. Maybe
2: we're like. Maybe
0: we're like. Maybe we are related. I think we are. Maybe May and I are related. Yeah.
1: I think May and I are related.
0: (laughs) 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 I think we might be related. I think we're
1: related. (laughs) um, Yeah, we should. We should. uh, My grandfather didn't didn't give you his right name. I think I think he 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 told your your grandmother that he was Robert Russell, but I don't think his name was George <laughs> Lund.
2: No, not Robert Russell. <laughs> that's fascinating harmony. Like I can't there's that's amazing finding things out about each other like after Yeah, that's
0: so it. weird. That's yeah. cool.
2: So and I also did finding. you know Rachel, that um Harmony's birthday is the same as my second sister's?
1: So oh. That's Yeah.
2: June 21st. Right.
1: Right. So you've got 10 years. You've been going to Mysore. You have a career. You're running a shala. What is all that like for you, you know, with a child and, and going out there? I think we
0: need to talk about the setting up of Veda. Yeah.
1: yeah. So all on, all like on your own.
2: Well, prior to that, right. So I started going to Mysore in 2004. Um, Rented a house there that I just kept. So, um, and then going back and forth pretty much like twice a year on a regular basis, staying like one or two months at a time and really just drinking from my time there. You know, it wasn't just my practice place, I, it was my um, charging place and my learning place. It was a place
1: app. where you drank a lot. No. What, what's going
2: on? Absorbing. Oh, Absorbing. Absor- I'm
1: sorry. <laughs>
2: Um, um, and, and not just the Shala and the school there, but my experience of India, like the motherland, you know? So another thing I sometimes say about myself is that I look Japanese, I speak American English, but my heart I found in South India. Mm, Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's such a special place for me. And, um, yeah, so going back and forth from 2004, and then I had my first son, Isa, in 2009. And shortly after that, I experienced a um, really kind of harsh and shocking divorce from my first husband. Mm. So, and, and you know, they say when it rains, it pours. And so the same month that all hell broke loose with my then husband, I also found out that my father had um, prostate cancer, which they discovered in a very Uh, advanced phase. Um, I had a son who was five, six months old at the time. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I decided that I needed to separate from my then husband. So um, yeah. And then I had kind of like my dad in the mix also on the sidelines because of his cancer. And I, you know, was working, teaching, um, well, more or less throughout pregnancy. And then I needed to sort of um, get back to work in that context um, after having had Issa. Um, And then I just really just needed to reevaluate my life. Like, how am I going to work? And how, how can I make this balance happen while being a single mom to such a young child? and then supporting my dad through his um, illness and through his um, surgery and recovery, which he recovered fully. And he's, um, it's been over 10 years now. So he's like still very much healthy. And um, so it, so at first I started teaching a Mysore program in Tokyo and, uh, I designed this program to be a women's only thing that people could only sign up monthly. And I would interview every student, potential student before taking taking them on. Um, and, uh, and I would teach this morning Mysore program like four days out of the week. And that was just a balance that I... Could work around, you know, still nursing a son and uh, yeah. supporting my dad, and also make enough to support a living. And yeah. I was also like supporting my dad at the time too. So, um, yeah. and then the studio space that I was renting at the time, uh, they they had some. Changes and they said that I wouldn't be able to rent their space anymore. And I started looking for another space, which um, to no luck, I had no luck finding another place to rent. And then a dear friend of mine um, just gave me some advice. You know, he's he's a very very successful business person, and he said to me, um, "Hey May, you know, maybe it's time you consider opening your own studio." And I said I couldn't imagine. Taking that on with such a young child, and you know the kind of investment it will take to mm. take a lease out Ugh. on property in Tokyo and all this stuff. But I respect this man so much that I, um, I-, I thought I-, I would at least think about it, you know. And because I wasn't having any luck um, finding another place to rent anyway, it's like I had, I had um, at the time I was taking on forty-four students in two batches. So I would do like two groups of twenty-two. Um, but I had like a, over a six month long wait list um, with people who wanted to join. Um, and I, so yeah, I had this community that was building around the program, but I didn't have a space and I needed a space. So as I was like looking at real estate and property to rent, just out of sheer necessity, I needed to start looking at the uh, places that I could rent maybe for a longer period of time or, you know, just not only in the morning hours, but just like, you know, take the lease out for the year or whatever. Um, and then I found this place, I found this space that would work out terrifically and it was a huge investment and that was definitely a really ballsy move for me, but I, I, decided to um, hunker down and do this. And, and you know, my son, Issa definitely played a role in that because if I didn't have a child, I would have been a lot more mobile to travel and teach like I used to in different regions. And, right? Which I really enjoyed doing too. But now with the child in tow, I wouldn't be, I knew I wouldn't be traveling so much. Um, so yeah. The, it was the community first the students first and then a little bit of advice that really pushed me to do my own thing yeah i never yeah. came down i never had my own like dream to open a studio or like my own business plan to make this happen or i never had any of that i just freestyled the whole thing and it was a huge success Well, can I say though, I opened the studio on March 3rd, 2011, one week after that, that was the Great Mm -hmm. uh, Earth Tsunami Disaster of East Japan, meaning um, uh, massive, massive earthquake, it was really scary. Um electricity was out, you know, it, it messed with public transportation. And then there were the nuclear plants in Fukushima that were in a very precarious situation. I had some people in higher up levels and places mm-hmm. that called to say, May, get out of town. Just take your child and get out of town. You know, like that kind of a vibe. So yeah.
1: it was that bad, yeah.
2: Was, was that that as in like nuclear threat, meaning we didn't know if the air was safe outside to play with your child in the park. That, that, it was you know? very,
1: very, I think I'd heard it was close to being like a Chernobyl situation. Yeah.
2: And, and then we, yeah, we didn't know if our bathing water was safe and that kind of a thing. Um, And that was just a week, a fresh week after I had opened wow. my studio in downtown Omotesando, which is, like an equivalent of opening a studio like behind Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, right? I mean, literally, like my uh-huh. studio was so beautiful. Like just down the street was um, Prada, um, Alexander McQueen, and then there was Cartier, um, whatever. But um, yeah, we, I kept shop there for 10 years. I lasted longer than Cartier. Wow. (laughs) Good for you. Uh, Right? (laughs) I know. So, so, um, but yeah, at the beginning, um, in every sense of the word, it was very rocky. It was very scary. And it would have been so easy to bail out and say, okay, this isn't possible. Let's quit. And I Mm -hmm. could have, maybe even would have, had the earthquake happened one week prior to opening. But it happened one week after I had already opened.
0: Right. Yeah, you were in it.
2: And something, I knew that we needed to mind our safety and then my child and then my father who was still undergoing treatment and all of these things. But something tugged hard on my heart that said, the people will need this now more than ever. Mm. Right? Because everyone was going to be like, Super anxious, um, very scared. Uh, people, people will always need to breathe um, mm-hmm. to find their balance, to come back to center, to to find peace and quiet in the simple things, yeah. you know. And if you were to rely on things like that like peace and health and community and connection and you know in other modes in other methods or in other ways there were so many things that were suddenly unavailable to us because we didn't know if the water was safe or because you know of all these things but yoga all you need all you need is a little bit of space and a flat floor and i can teach you how to monitor your breath, your nervous Mm -hmm. system, how to, you know, guide and ease yourself to comfort, sleep, um, rejuvenation, healing. And all that's going to require of you is a little bit of flat space, a little bit of time. And I just asked for your attention. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I did. So I took, I Mm -hmm. took a couple weeks off, but I, I just went back to work and I started running the program again, um in spite of uh what do you call those um we would have uh we call them yoshing, I know the Japanese word and don't know the English, but when after a massive earthquake, then you still have like the smaller quakes that are still kind of big oh, now yeah month, you know, yeah, yeah yeah
1: we don't have a word for that but oh actually, we do aftershock aftershock, yeah
2: shop. so we had that for months and it would mess with public transportation it would mess with business and you know stuff like that but i just wow. kept opening every single day that i could i just kept showing up i just kept showing up and sometimes it would be one student sometimes three sometimes five um but some of these people you know they were in tokyo and their families are in other regions in japan or they hmm. they needed a place they needed a community And they needed that sanctuary, that sacred place to come back to in their own self, right? And that's my job. That's what I can help to show you, not to give you, because it's something you already have. But if you lose touch with that, I find it an absolute joy and privilege for me to get to be the one to witness you in refinding that, you know? So that's... Yeah, that's been my love. And so the community then, in turn, inspired me, inspired me to keep going and keep showing up. And I, and I, so I did that for 10 years. Yeah.
1: Can I ask you a question? You have a, a quote here that uh, about your Ashtanga Yoga School, you wouldn't have minded if it was co ed, but it was a practical decision. Right. And I, I wanted I wanted to know what you meant by that.
2: Well, so keeping in mind then that I'm a pretty thin, small framed woman who had just <laughs> given birth to a big baby, right? Yeah. And I'm within the first year postpartum, okay? Within the first year postpartum, um, with a father who has cancer that I was supporting at the time. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure out a way that I could um offer a program that was authentic to my soul and have it make business sense. Now, teaching and running a Mysore program involves heavy lifting. Yes. Mm. And and for me to maintain that at 6 a.m. hours on a regular basis, long term and keep healthy myself, it was a practical decision to say let's make this a women's only thing. incredible yeah because because um the how do how would you say like um because so from a business standpoint right purely from a business standpoint it's almost um it's almost uh harmless could you say to say that it's a women's only program because the the men the population is so small anyway um Mm -hmm. And then there's there are also a group of other women I think that would feel maybe a little bit more comfortable at early morning hours um, in a in a female only sort of energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, the most- it also creates
1: uh, something exclusive that you can be a part of, which is it's such a there's such a, a frisson in that kind of a marketing. So
2: so it's really. It's really cool that you mentioned that because I actually found that out after the fact. That wasn't my initial intention (laughs) because, like I said, it was kind of like more of a practical decision for me because there's only so much heavy lifting I could do. And like I'm going home and I'm still carrying a baby, you know? Yeah. Um, But so as I started running this women-only program, I learned that the women were developing uh, kind of like a community feel, but almost a little bit like an elitist community feel because they have to be part of something really
1: exclusive. Special, yeah.
2: Right, and that wasn't necessarily my like intention, but I learned that, um, and also knowing that you're in this program and there's like a six, eight month waiting list for your spot, right?
0: Right, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's amazing.
2: So then, you know, but it's a 6 a.m., 7 a.m. thing. So say 22 people are signed on in the first batch, but not all 22 of them are showing up every morning. Of course. But even the ones that weren't showing up didn't want to give up their spots.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: (laughs) They just, they were like good paying customers and they just wanted to um, keep their spots. But then I recognized also very quickly this, um, the benefits of this community building. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it was actually one of my students who suggested to me, you know, um, um, it would be really cool if um, we could have some kind of a gathering, you know, because in a morning Mysore setting, you're never talking, you're not like really, you know, getting to know each other that way aside from the way you breathe and move. so. Um, so, so she suggested, you know, it'd be really nice to get to know each other. So I started hosting like once every two months, I think, like a kind of a small gathering, like a tea situation where people can just yes.
3: talk
2: about their experience and how they're changing. And maybe they're going through divorce or maybe they want a baby or maybe they've just had a baby or, you know, all of the stuff mm. that goes hand in hand with life but also hand in hand with any real yoga practice, right? You can't separate yoga practice with life because the whole point of practice is to apply it, to use it, to enhance your life. So, Mm -hmm. and as you can imagine, like a lot of these women, they, and, and especially in a more, suppressed cultural context, they found tremendous solace in a community where they can be themselves and not be judged or, you know, find each other very inspiring because they are going to be uplifting each other, you know, mm-hmm. like you're not going to be totally. eating with each other and um, that kind of thing. So I saw that magic happen. And there's so much magic that just happens when you show up and it's not even like my planning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so then, of course, that inspires me to build the community. So, so then, um, but I did eventually, and not very long after, I did switch it to co-ed because once I found the Omotesando studio space that I kept for 10 years, once I moved my program there, um, then I also welcomed a team of other instructors aside from myself. Mm-hmm. Um, to mm-hmm. run the whole business, the whole studio. And then when I maintained this uh, morning women's only Mysore of group, I quickly saw that it was segregating the community from like the um, quote unquote elitist group to everyone right. else, which I didn't want to do. So I um, so I uh, how'd you say it? I um, opened it up integrated I integrated. I integrated women, yes. and also evolved the whole thing. But I also um, uh, terminated like this m- more exclusive membership. And right. even then, even then, um, I remember even my dad was against my decision at the time because I would um, quote unquote lose the regular financial. Uh, Income, right. the revenue, the membership status, right? And I would open it to like regular tickets, and then it would expose mm-hmm. me for the next six months to irregular income, it more right. like unstable income. However, I knew that after six months it would be better in the long haul because the community would grow. So, so right. I said, "No, Daddy, I'm not taking your advice," and I did my shit anyway,
0: <laughs> as all good daughters <laughs> should. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Hearing myself say that, and I was like, Oh, that's the quarter American in me. That's not the three quarters. Yeah, um, that's no. right. That's
0: right. Um, that's the quarter it's,
1: American. It's funny. It's, it is advice that Hamish gave me when I was in, in Brighton. I was uh, teaching a shala, and I called him up and I said, You know, I've only got five or six people here. I'm dying. I'm dying here. And he said, Well, create a waiting list for people to get in i was like that's the opposite that's the opposite of what i i don't need a wait. i need people no no as soon as you create a waiting list you won't be able to kick them out they'll come in droves (laughs) if you create a waiting list and i i saw a friend of mine in austin do that she had a waiting list for her shala and the place was packed because people wanted to be in there so bad
2: right yeah and and you know like I, and I know that people enter into yoga for different reasons and also into yoga teaching and yoga studio running for all different reasons. So, mm-hmm. you know,
3: That's
2: that to be said. But for me, um, if I were to go way back to the beginning, I never really was interested in becoming a teacher. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my idea. Mm-hmm. It was <laughs> It was first Ken's idea, my first teacher, right? Ken Harakuma. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because, you know, I had already been practicing for a couple of years and he saw that this boom, this yoga boom phase was like hitting in society and there would be a shortage of teachers and he just thought that I would make a good teacher. So, and he was expanding his business and, you know, teaching programs out of different studios mm-hmm. too. So he came up to me and he said, "Um, you know, Mechan, would you like to teach? Chan is like this familiarity uh, suffix. Yeah. That, different uh, different like, from Mei-san. Different, just that's more formal. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Ken-san goes, uh, Mei-chan, you know, would you like to teach? And I said to him, hmm, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I took it home and thought about it because I wouldn't say yes. But I wouldn't say no. I said, I'll think about it Mm
3: -hmm. because
2: I wasn't, I honestly wasn't interested in teaching other people yoga. I was honestly pretty much for the first 10 years easily. I was purely only interested in furthering my own yoga. That's how Jesper started, right? But, but um, when he offered, and then he offered me pretty quickly too, only like a couple years into my practice. So, when he offered me, it was like I fully confess it was like a more of a selfish decision because I knew that if I started teaching, I would push myself to learn more accurately, like all of the vinyasas, all of the postures. Yeah,
1: that happens.
2: All of, all of that stuff. So then the I teacher go, learns
1: more than the student, hundred percent. So well,
2: I think he, I think he initially offered me to teach as often as like. Three or maybe even four times a week, because all of the different studios were opening in yeah. Tokyo. But I said to him, "I'll take one. I'll take one <laughs> slot, of- um, and and I'll only do it on a weekday. Like I didn't want to do like massive classes." But that's yeah. how I started. And then and I have formerly known myself to be like rather a type A perfectionist type. So once I committed myself to teaching, I was in the bath every night with my earphones on, you know, going, I come inhale, let do it, exhale, like
3: just
2: the <laughs> whole freaking primary series. And then I would go and do it backwards because I was wow. so ready whole thing yeah. and then like even the sanskrit um, names and pronunciations and like it's like a pet peeve for me when they don't say the long ah correctly and stuff yeah. like you know sure.
3: like,
2: Ana, like it's like mm, right yeah, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> um i used to and this is how perfectionist i was like every time i would start my practice i used to take out all of my earrings and my necklaces and like anything you know because i just needed to be like you know i needed to not have things hanging off of my body like to focus on the yeah. practice. And I used to, so I remember when I first started teaching, because I was so strict with myself, I used to recommend to my students that maybe you should consider taking your earrings off, you know, before you go into that. <laughs> yeah. That was the start I took like way back when. So mm. forgive me old students who have survived my college.
1: I don't know. T- to me, in the 90s, it was just standard. You take your jewelry and watches off in the yoga class and then like somehow <laughs> over the last 20 years, it would just be like, no, just wear everything you want. Just, wear uh, your Apple uh, smart computer on your wrist <laughs> and let it, you know, measure your biorhythms and give you the news while you're reading, while you're, yeah, you, you're reading the newspaper, while you're doing your similar summer scar. Summer summer. like, oh, come on. <laughs> what?
2: A- um. <clears throat> I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a sec, but that reminds me of like the first time, I don't know what year it was, but because um, it, Mysore itself, South India, like practice central itself started to evolve and change and different people started coming mm-hmm. kind of to the world. And that whole dynamic got a lot more casual too. Right. I remember yeah, first, yeah. I pulled my mat up in like one of the front rows. Cause you know, you kind of have your spot, you know, mm-hmm. and then later on, like in my practice, when the, when the, Later batch people start coming in, and then somebody rolled their mat next to me, and then somebody else rolled their mat next to me, and they're, you know, start doing their Surya Namaskars. And then the guy that was next to the girl that was next to me is like, they catch each other like in a downward dog at the same time situation, you know? Yeah. Some, <laughs> yeah. I swear, I heard the guy go, So, where are you from? Like, in uh,
1: Oh, what? Just- no, that's not allowed, man. That's <laughs> totally not, totally not cool. That's this is so not the time funny. nor the place. <laughs> you can do yeah. that at the coconut stand. No.
2: no. So- <laughs> mm. But that was like that was a really kind of like eye opening moment for me. Tell us, like, wow, the scene really is changing, and then you just wrap your <laughs> shirt when you get out of there, but. <laughs> um, yeah, all that to say that I think um, for some of us who started in earlier days, I don't know, for lack of a better description, there used to be a little bit more of like a strict, almost like a military feel, you know? Yeah, 100%. Like yeah, sure. That whole like masculine thing. One hundred percent. I was very much part of not only practicing, not only like developing my practice mm-hmm. in such an environment, but also in perpetuating it, right? And teaching in mm-hmm. the way that I did for the first few years. Um, but, but I think my point that I was getting to was that I started for, at the basis of everything um, that was the beginning for me is that I in love with yoga and I wanted to know everything about it right mm-hmm. like just like I was saying about Sriman and my mom when you fall in love yeah. you want to know do feel breathe you want to do everything every hour in every way that you possibly can mm-hmm. with it or about it you can't get it off of your mind and that's how I started yoga and it's that's how it thoroughly changed not just my life, but probably first and foremost, the landscape of my mind, the way that I see and perceive the world. Because I remember so clearly that I used to see and perceive the world as a dark, cold place. And I learned that that was the lens through which I was looking at the world.
1: At the world.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm. And I learned to change that about my mind and about my lens and about my perception. And that, that's a miracle, right? That's, mm-hmm. this, this is what they I, I'm not so familiar at all, but there's uh, that's what they say about the course in miracles, right? A miracle is a mm-hmm. shift in perception. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. When you change, when you really allow, you know, when you're willing to change your mind, change yourself in that way, then really that, of magic happens and so so yeah and that's what happened to me and eventually of course because it was so wondrous for me then i wanted to share my experience with others just in a very organic and natural way um but i didn't need to necessarily be a teacher to do that i was already doing that through the magazine through the columns and um and and i honestly like when i teach i think i do it more as a friend than as yeah. this hierarchical like teacher disciple structure that we very much find a lot in Asia, um, but mind you, mm-hmm. even though I teach in a very I don't know colloquial sort of friendly non hierarchical manner, the general public still refer to me as sensei. You know, like of teacher. <laughs> you no. Know? So, so there's that <laughs> dynamic that that I've always been very keenly aware of too, because I don't want to play into that. I don't want to be put on a pedestal. I want to be able to like fucking curse and get away with it. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Oh, yeah.
2: like, that whole yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so there's that. For me, um, it,
1: so- it would be like chopping off my arm before I, <laughs> if I wasn't allowed that to. Was
3: That's <laughs> that like an underpinment
2: your arm, but.
1: <laughs> mm.
3: It's
2: so yeah. it's so
0: beautiful to have that awareness I think and then also to to be able to be natural in the situation or in the scenario where you are the teacher um because I think it also allows students to be natural and to accept themselves and like you know love themselves because they're not trying to be perfect or be anything and if they are you know, you're not encouraging that kind of like you need to be something different than what you are because you are being so natural and so who you are in that situation.
2: Yeah. So I think we can all kind of um, have our own sort of pulse on the situation here when we touch upon like discussions about the the patriarchy and like how that plays mm-hmm. into um Yoga and discipleship and teacher-student dynamic and you know just historically and culturally that kind of like occurrence and undercurrent of mm-hmm. that. Um, but imagine for a second, like that kind of like male-female undercurrent dynamic going on, multiplied by a very much Asian vertical hierarchical, like never challenged <laughs> teacher, like straightforward structure that can yeah. be a pretty dangerous mix yeah. you know in every from every angle teacher to student student to teacher studio involved like whatever that whole thing and mm-hmm. I have seen it I have witnessed yeah. it um, and it's disgusting you know yeah. um, and I think yeah let's not be afraid to say it a lot of times there's sex involved there's affairs involved there's betrayal involved Mm -hmm. um you know there's an abuse of power there's exactly that an abuse of power but also there's a abuse of power um generally speaking like on the male end right if you know in that dynamic but let's 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 be fair to say that the power is being um That the the female sort of dynamic of that is being completely uh, ignorant of the power that belongs to you, the authorship of your Mm -hmm. choice and decision that you are not respecting. Not only are you not respecting, but you are not noticing because you have so easily given it up
1: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, to the source side of yourself. And... And, and, I, and we, you know, we're speaking about that in terms of like yoga and community and the vertical structure and stuff like that, but that just can happen anywhere. You yeah. Know?
0: It happens and all over.
2: It happens all over. And so, yeah. um And I, and I, you know, and that's not to separate myself from any of this dynamic either, but um, at least, I, I think I had a little bit of that quarter Americanness in me, where I could at least speak <laughs> up and be like, "Wait, yeah. is that shit happening for real?" Like, I don't. I think that's gross. Like, I would actually, you know, I, I mean, I could go up to a person and be like, "Hey, you know," like, yeah, it's just because if something doesn't settle, it doesn't settle. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, not making anything fancy or not. Um, trying to diminish something that's, you know, is what it is. But it's just, I think it's just part of the culture and the era that we're in. And we're all trying to navigate through it. So, yeah, that's kind of the mix that I found myself in. And so many times in my life and in my past, I have been completely confused and lost in that mix, too. Being like, you know, female but having like strong masculine energy, but but trying to remember my softness and like <laughs> and then also yeah. being like a teacher and having that authority, but wait, I don't want to be like that kind of a teacher or or right. you know, like and just just being a mom or just being a person and yeah, I think yeah. we're all navigating that. So
0: Yeah, it's a yeah. lot, it's a lot to navigate for sure. <laughs> find your place and, like, try to, like, you know, not be too soft and not be too hard and not be too strict and not be too lenient. And, you know, there's it shows up all the time. And even, like, you know, people would say, like, how do you, you know, be disciplined but, like, not obsessive, right? Or how do you, like, how do you know when you're being lazy versus needing a day off, right? So, you're always kind of navigating that, those extremes, I think. And, you know, yeah. I think you hit yeah. it right on the head when you said it requires like deep listening right. and like putting your source of power back in yourself, in like right. like what's really going on here.
2: Yeah, what ripped that away from you in the first place, right? Yeah. What did you let rip away from
1: you? That it reminded me so much of the through line through our whole conversation has been this dynamic between the horizontal. Path and the vertical path, uh, the the obsessive um, uh, path of the renunciate versus the horizontal, languid path of the family uh, person, the householder, the person in the environment, uh, in in the world. You know, I think Richard Freeman would sometimes talk about this. Like, there's the this kind of the difference between the zero and the one. And somehow not being zero and not being one, which seems impossible. like somehow trying to find your place there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Why are you smiling like that, Harmony? It
0: reminds me of Yeah, it reminds me of this quote that always reminds me of you because I think you introduced me to this quote um, by uh Nazaraga Dot, I think. I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? When I when yeah, I am love, we says, yeah, you haven't memorized.
2: he says it's um Shri Nisargadatta Maharaj, and he says when I see, when I see, I am nothing. That is wisdom. When I see, I am everything. That is love. And between these two, my life moves. That's yes. what
0: he says. Yes. yes, it always reminds me of you, and it reminds me of this, this inf- infinite infinity between the zero and yes. the one, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, yes, and that you flow, you flow with it. You know, you don't decide, mm-hmm. you flow. And and that, that that reminds me like another kind of common thread with um, Shreema Ananda Maya is that one of the one of my favorite um, stories about. Shri Nisargadatta Maharaj, if I remember correctly, I hope I remember this correctly, is that um, he used to be, uh, he used to own or run like a little electronics shop. Do you guys know this? Mm -hmm. I don't know the story, I don't think. Well, I I think, if I remember this correctly, I think um, Shri Nisargadatta Maharaj used to just be like this uh, papa who uh, worked at this little electronics shop selling light bulbs and whatnot. Just an ordinary layman. Who realized himself, and and mm-hmm. that's the thing. Like I think I really love that um, about um, Nisargadatta Maharaj and also about Sri is that they somehow you know maintain their ordinariness right next yeah. to their sublime you know sacred nature, and I think that's mm-hmm. what I find so inspiring. Yeah. Mm-hmm yeah, me yeah. Too. I want to add though in context <laughs> no that because um I realized I don't know it took me years you guys it took me years, but I need to admit that um for a long time, because I got so into Ashtanga yoga and I, I let it transform my life so thoroughly and I believed in it so much. But I believed it, I believed Ashtanga Yoga to be the most thorough and complete package of health and fitness of like mind, body, like spirit, that kind of like totality. Mm-hmm. I believed Ashtanga Yoga to be like the most complete package. And I never pushed it upon anybody or I never, um, you know, I never claimed it for anybody else, but I think. I'm pretty sure that in my own heart, I carried a little bit of a sense of superiority about it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I came to a place of admittance about that within my own heart. I needed to, in my own way, say, I'm sorry. You know, I needed to say I'm sorry for that sense of arrogance. Goodness. Um, Eric, you know, that yeah, um, for thinking somewhere for believing somewhere deep in my heart that um, that this was a little bit better than other styles of yoga or other styles of, of, of or ways of life or walks of life, you know, yeah. and and I always since the first time since the first day week that I started yoga, I always thought that I would be doing this for life. I think maybe for the first 10 years, I thought that I would be doing, you know, Ashtanga for life and I would be doing third series and fourth series and like whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I later then realized, not without grief, not without the grief of letting go, um, that I was only limiting myself. You know, and that this kind of like, how would you say, this kind of like hardcore mentality, this rigidity around any belief, not just yoga or religion or, or cults or anything, but like any belief, when you start believing that it's like the only or it's the best or it's the better than way, that's a moment to really take caution. and And that's something that's really opened me. Um, paradoxically, to what yoga truly is, like beyond the limitations and beyond um, the facets of what we think it to be, you know. Mm. That's so
0: important, and it's so. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can, if you can teach people how to get there. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like I feel like a journey that your own learning and experience has to kind of open you up to yeah. because when you're so attached and like in that space of like, this is the best way, this is the most powerful or this is the practice I'm going to do for life. And it's, you know,
1: it's my tribe.
0: Yeah. You're so identified with it. Right.
1: (laughs) Against those other tribes.
0: Then you can't even imagine like, opening yourself into a space where, where it's not that like number one identifying factor of yourself yeah, in a way, right? It,
2: right. Yeah. Cause you've already judged it. Yeah, and right. but then, like work. you say, there's a lot of
0: grief uh, of letting go that has to happen <laughs> right. because it is a part of your identity. You've taken it on so thoroughly as like who you are, what you're about. That yeah. that it's like an unlayering, a shedding, and then it's like, who am I without this? Yes. And I, yes. And, you and until you I'm reach.
3: This. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then,
0: and then when you reach that point, only then I think can you kind of then practice and not necessarily be identified with it. You know, when you kind of are able to go beyond it sure. or or experience yourself uh, as separate or apart from it or as something. That isn't identified with it in in a way,
2: right? And not needed to define who you are.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: These um these five yeah. koshas, where they say these five heaps of rubbish,
0: <laughs> the bodies. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, it's I, it's so powerful. So,
2: so, I so completely love, and I'm so grateful that I get to have this conversation with you guys after <laughs> what like. Eighteen years, yeah, I know. It's amazing.
1: Well, i had, I had yeah. meant to ask you uh, all of these extremely personal questions, but all these <laughs> about all these tragedies and exquisite stories. And unfortunately, I think we've run out of time. For but these we should we should ask really... her just about
0: her books before we go. Does
1: she have books? Yeah. <laughs> mm, does she have books? Fantastic. Let's talk about the books. <laughs> these books that you have out. And we'll just sort of gloss. Uh, we'll we'll just pass over these other. We can sort say of part, horrible Well, things. you'll
0: you can read about part two in your book that's coming out, can't you? Part All of the personal. On well, part two of the podcast, <laughs> you have to read about it
2: by <laughs> the book. Two without Russell, like squeezing in his crass jokes. I I have
1: a, a number of them.
2: <laughs> we'll do part two.
0: We'll do part two when when your book is released in English. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. So the book project is something that I have been warmly gestating for actually a couple of years now. But um, I am a published author here in Japan. I have two books out. The first was a compilation of like a number of blogs, and and then the second was a more kind of a handbook of. Ashtanga yoga basics and a lifestyle sort of thing. And then the third one that I wrote recently, I wrote for the first time the entire thing in English. And it's my experience. It's kind of like a memoir slash inspirational essay collection because I like to share my experiences and also sort of have them be teaching slash learning lessons um, of my recent life. Um, It includes the loss of my husband because my second husband, um, who I married in my mid-30s, we spent a beautiful few years together. And then one bright, sunshiny spring morning in 2018, he suddenly was killed in a traffic accident, um, which obviously has been a very deeply shocking experience, um, not just for me and my kids, but also for my family, his family, and for everyone that knew him. Um, And so these are some of the life experiences, but what the storytelling does is it weaves, it weaves in my evolution of perspective Because, um, you know, when we were speaking earlier, I was talking about my mom. And when my mom first got sick, what, I don't know, 20 some years ago, I couldn't stop asking why, 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 why. And that Mm -hmm. made me so sick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when my husband suddenly passed, um, there's nothing, there's no nice way to say something like that. There's no, you know sugarcoating it, but I can tell you, I didn't ask why. I never asked why now, why me, why this, why so young, why him, why us. I never asked that about his death. And that has been a saving grace Hmm. because I came I don't know, I, it's really hard for me to describe in words, but I, even in spite of all of the grief and all of the shock, and I was so disoriented for a long time. And I probably have like blocks of memory <laughs> loss from that whole period. But I, um, I was always willing to come to a place of acceptance about it because I loved him so much. Mm-hmm. And because he loved me so thoroughly, I can tell you that I have been loved to the marrow of my bones. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't change when someone dies. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in this weird, um, very mysterious place where I was like hugely grief stricken. And I was feeling extremely grateful that I ever met and shared my life with him.
0: Wow.
2: Wow. And so I wrote my book, this uh, memoir about my collection of experiences through that, the evolution of that perspective and my healing, right? So instead of making it like a whole teaching thing, I wanted to invite the reader to, um, yeah, kind of like take the journey with me. Um, Because as long as you're alive, I think that the reality of death is something that we all live with, you know?
3: Mm
2: Yeah. 100%. So I have no idea idea how um, this is going to unfold and take off. And there's some things kind of cooking in the background, but uh, I'll I'll be sure to let you guys know when it starts to take off.
1: (laughs) Is is It's being in the process of being written now, or is it published and out?
2: So the entire manuscript is complete. I am in the agent courting process. And I am... (laughs) I am well, it was, it, the publishing industry in the United States works completely differently than it, the way it does here. Like here, I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be so difficult for me to be published um, Yeah. pretty quickly, I think. But, but in the, in the States, I don't have like a following. I don't have an English following. And, um, and so, um, yeah, so I'm like querying with agents and then, and then once I can decide upon an agent, then they will, uh, hook me up with the publisher like that whole sort exactly. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I'm also I'm also treating this with utmost care. I don't just mm-hmm. want to like it out, you know, like like yeah. I want to see how big I can take this thing. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's another thing. That's another thing I can say about loss, you know, I when you have gone through a loss so big you feel like you don't have anything else to lose. To, mm-hmm. you are to dream big. Mm-hmm. You know I love it. That's given, me, that's given me a whole new level of permission to really walk into my own life. You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: fantastic. Well, you're so beautiful and so brave and just such a lovely, lovely human spirit, God embodied in human form. Mm. And I'm just thrilled and blessed that you're in my life and that you're one of my closest friends. So
2: goodness,
3: I'm
0: so happy. (laughs) (laughs) And if people want to, uh, take classes, they can come to VEDA online and they can also practice with me, uh, Mm. Tokyo time, (laughs) 6am on Mondays and Fridays.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is, so, so, um, this is actually like one of the first, um, instances where I really, yeah, I'm on an English podcast or really just talking myself out in this uh, quarter American bitchiness (laughs) style, Um, my 20 years like pristine career in Japan sort of a dynamic Um, but yeah so if um, you know anyone wants to kind of keep up to date with me please find me on Instagram Um, it's Mm -hmm. M-A-E-Y-O-S-H-I K-A-W-A which Russell will put in the show notes thank you yes And, um, so my studio is called Veda, VedaTokyo.com, and it's it's a Japan Tokyo-based operation. But we are now fully online, and I'm so 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 delighted and honored that Harmony, as well as Basha, as well as yes, Basha. Um, Kathy Louise, she is also on our platform. And uh, yeah, so we so we offer yoga as well as like zazen and some other fun workshops and stuff. So please check it out. Amazing. Yes.
0: Great. We will put all the links in the show notes so everyone can link up. (laughs) Yeah. And thank you so much for being our guest today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you and just absorb your energy and your wisdom and your flow of consciousness coming to (laughs) you.
2: So thank you.
1: (laughs) You honor us with your presence, madam.
2: I was gonna say thank you for your presence, and I oh. um, apologize for all of your um, jokes that I didn't catch on in time.
1: Oh, no. I,
2: I did <laughs> no. I think nothing, you did a
1: great job. No, no, no there's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing subtle about my performance. I can assure you.
0: <laughs> I only wish we got the part at the beginning about the hair. That was a good. Oh, that one, was a too. good joke.
1: <laughs> That
0: was a good uh,
3: I liked it. it No, it wasn't recording. That's
0: a shame. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.